Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 613 with Brian Ahern. Brian, the persuasion master, is back talking about principles of persuasion, which is really juicy stuff. So interesting. In fact, I was reading a book about this on my honeymoon. So you're going to learn how to get all the more yeses by setting the stage well. So you'll learn, one, how one question dramatically improves your chances of getting a yes. Two, the two ways to capture people's attention. And three, why we're more persuasive when we talk less. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you can check us out at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP613. That's awesomeatyourjob.com slash F613 to get the links and the transcript and all those goodies. And if you're hanging out at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out a little something called the Gold Nugget email list. The Gold Nuggets give you access to summary insight and wisdom from Brian and every guest who's gone before him in an email you can read in just about three minutes on the day of the episode release and then sort of access to the vault on demand whenever you want for free forever. We call that the Gold Nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Brian's story. Brian Ahern is the Chief Influence Officer at Influence People a dynamic international keynote speaker. He specializes in applying the science of influence in everyday situations. Brian is one of only 20 individuals in the world who currently holds the Cialdini Method Certified Trainer designation. The specialization was earned directly from Robert B. Cialdini, PhD, the most cited living social psychologist on the science of ethical influence. Brian's last book, Influence People, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade That Are Lasting and Ethical. Get it? It's an acronym, people is an Amazon bestseller, and his LinkedIn courses have been viewed by more than 70,000 people. Big thanks to Brian for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here is Brian. Brian, thanks so much for joining us again on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. I'm excited to be back with you, Pete. Well, I'm excited to, to dig into your wisdom. And so I want to hear, so we're talking about some persuasive principles from Bob Cialdini's book. And it's a funny story. I actually read that book when I was on my honeymoon with my wife in Hawaii. So that shows you how into the stuff I am. Like, that's a good beach read for me as social psychologists work. But you use some persuasive principles when you proposed marriage yourself. What's the story here? Yeah. So in my first job, first day, 
on the job with Travelers Insurance. I'm in the HR training room and I see Jane and I think, wow, she's beautiful. And uh, she said that she looked at me and thought, what an egghead. Uh-huh. So, so I stumbled out of the gate badly, but I recovered quickly. And, and within a few weeks, I was no longer going out with this longtime girlfriend. And Jane and I started dating and we fell in love and it was awesome until the old girlfriend called in the fall. And it really threw me for a loop, Pete. And all of a sudden, I didn't know who I wanted to be with. And, and I couldn't make up my mind for six months. Oh, my gosh. What were you doing during that period of time? <laughs> I was back and forth, back and forth. Did they know about each other? How did you work that? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Funny, they both felt bad for me oh. because I sincerely... Sweet gals. <laughs> yeah. Well, I sincerely cared about both of them and I hated the thought of, of hurting either one. And I, anyway, I was in this state of indecision and Jane and I still work together. And uh, this was in like late April. I saw her in the break room one day. I asked how she's doing and she said she was doing fine. And that's when she announced that she would never go out with me again. And nobody could blame her given my indecision. Mm-hmm. But I had really kind of settled things in my heart by that time. And I was actually thinking, I want to marry her crazy as that sounds. So I knew I was going to need to do something big if I was going to make this happen. And getting to the persuasion, here's what I did. Her birthday was in mid-May. And so I sent her a couple dozen roses at work. And then I showed up at her apartment later. She had agreed to go to dinner. I showed up at her apartment with another dozen roses and a bottle of wine. Now she's thinking it's a pretty nice birthday. We get ready to go to dinner. We go downstairs from her apartment, and I had rented a Rolls Royce and chauffeur Mm. to uh, drive us to downtown Columbus. And then uh, we went to a restaurant that was, at the time, the tallest building in Columbus. We rode this glass elevator up over 30 stories, so it was really romantic, and had dinner overlooking the skyline and took the glass elevator back down. And then in the back of the Rolls on the way home, I popped the question, and she said yes. Hot dog. So you weren't even officially dating at the moment? but it was a good birthday. <laughs> yeah. It was clearly romantic. <laughs> yeah. And she was pretty insistent only weeks before that she would never go out with me again. And and what I know is this, Pete, if I would have just in that break room that day said, hey, Jane, I'm sorry, I love you. And I want to marry you. She would have been like, go jump in a lake. You know what, Brian, I've heard it before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think uh, even if I had done it probably any other way than I did, she still would have had reservations. But I I don't know. I, I persuaded her. I kind of made it fairy tale like, and it certainly made the yes come a lot easier. There was no hesitation when I finally popped the question. Well, well that is beautiful. And so, and maybe I should just clarify. So, and maybe it's easier to see this when it's written. You're saying the word persuasion mm-hmm. as opposed to persuasion. So we've inverted the R and the E, mm-hmm. implying that there's there's some persuasion and something that's happening yeah. before a request. And in this instance, before you pop the question, you were setting the stage with, oh, okay, this guy's pretty, pretty clearly committed, made up his mind, mm-hmm. going big and investing in in me. So that, that sets a tone there. So m- maybe could you maybe zoom out a bit and, and give us kind of the, the full picture in terms of what's the main idea behind persuasion? So most people are focused on persuasion. That is, what do we say or do in the moment? How do we communicate to make it easier for somebody to say yes? But persuasion, and you use the term setting the stage, and I like to use that term too. Persuasion is how do we arrange that moments before so that somebody might be in the right frame of mind to make it even easier that when we go, when we make that ask, 
I think a really good example that people could relate to is if I had three buckets of water in front of me, a red bucket on my right with scalding hot water, a blue bucket on my left with icy cold, and in the middle was just room temperature. Is it purple? We'll call it purple for you. Let's make it purple. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So like a little kid. (laughs) If I plunged my hand into that hot bucket and then put it into the lukewarm water, all of a sudden it would feel cold. I mean, people get that. It's like getting out of a hot tub and, you know, getting into the pool. But if I took my other hand and put it into the icy cold and then put it into the lukewarm, it feels hot. Now, if I do that at the same time into the hot, into the cold, and then put them both Hmm. into that middle bucket, one hand feels cold and one feels hot. But the reality is they're experiencing the exact same temperature water. I've changed, though, how I experienced that by what I did beforehand. And that's a picture of persuasion. What can I do beforehand to change how somebody will positively experience what I'm about to do next? Well, that is a nice visual and kinesthetic, I guess, you know, at the same time that uh, sort of, you know, puts that into perspective. And so then can you share with us some, some studies, some experience, experiments, some research that, that reveals just how powerful this effect can be? Sure. Where we are mentally in the moments before we make a decision or, or are going to say yes or no to something where we are mentally can make a huge difference in that willingness to say yes. And I think one study that really encapsulates this, a marketing firm was interacting with people at a grocery store as they would come in. So imagine, Pete, you walk in and somebody like me says, hi, I I work for a marketing firm. We represent ABC Company. They've come out with a new type of pop or soda, depending where you live. They come out with a new type of pop. And we're asking customers, if you will give us your email address, we'll send you an email with coupons for free samples. Would you be willing to share your email? And in that scenario, 33% of people said, sure. All right. So basically cold. Hey, you want some free pop slash soda? Yep. One third said, yeah, give, oh, here's my email. So that's the kind of the control group. And then with another group though, 76% said yes to the exact same question. The difference was when you came in, that person would ask you a question first and they would say, excuse me, do you consider yourself to be adventurous? The kind of person who likes to try new things. Well, as you can imagine, virtually everybody can think of a time where they have been adventurous and we can all think of a time where we've tried new things. So almost everybody said yes to that. And then when they said, well, I work for a marketing firm, represent ABC company, new type of pop. If you're willing to give us your email address, we'll send you an email with free samples. That change of mindset, getting you to think about the fact that you are adventurous and like to try new things, then all of a sudden it became much easier to say yes to the very same question. You know, I love that example. And I don't remember if it was an an influence or persuasion where they also had the instance of asking, do you consider yourself a helpful person? And then like survey responses went way up. And and I actually used that once. (laughs) Hey, listeners, I used that once in an email asking for our survey (laughs) to to be, do you consider yourself a helpful person was the subject line. And well, hey, many of you are. Thank you, listeners, for filling that out. That was super helpful. It really does set the stage and you want to live up to, well, I guess there's a few factors at work. You want to live up to that identity. Lay it on us. What's going on there internally? Well, if you go all the way back to Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people, one of the tips that he had was give someone a fine reputation to live up to. Now, he didn't know about the term persuasion. He wasn't doing research and studies 
but he he understood that when you give that person a reputation to live up to, most people will want to do that. And so for your listeners thinking, well, how would I potentially use this? Let's say you need to go to a store and you're going to return something and it's past the 30 day mark. So technically they have every right to say you're beyond 30 days. Uh, no, hmm. this is rigging true. But I think if you go up and you say to that person, you know, you see their little name tag and you say, uh, Alice, you guys have been really helpful in the past and, and I hope you can help me now. And then you begin to talk about what it is that you want to get accomplished by giving her that, that helpful label because people at that store have been helpful in the past. She is more likely to try to live up to that, just like your readers were. So when you give somebody that reputation to live up to, they usually will try to find a way to do that. And if she's thinking of herself as helpful, she's probably going to be a little more creative or a little more open to flexing the rules for you. Well, you know, I, I love that a lot. And and so, and this brings up, I guess, ethical questions, but our whole first interview, <laughs> Brian, was about ethical uh, persuasion and influence. So, so check that out, anybody, if, if you're concerned about this stuff. And, and, I, and I think it was, you put it very well in terms of, you know, hey, it's honest, it's good for them, it's good for you. And some of those principles really play out well here. And that notion of giving someone a fine reputation to live up to, I, I'm thinking about my buddy Muhammad, who was also on the show. And I remember he... You know, he's just a really super kind guy, just naturally being him. We were started a business together and, and someone helped us out with some advice and some input. And he emailed her and said, you know, thanks for being so generous with your time. And I, I, I wrote him a whole email about how I love that phrase, <laughs> because one, we really do appreciate it. And, and two, they really were being generous with their time. And so that's a message that ought to be conveyed. And at the same time, in so conveying that, it, it does give them a fine reputation to live up to in terms of, you know what, I am just kind of someone who is generous with their time. So should we have a follow-up question? Yeah, I think, th I don't have any studies on this, but I imagine the, the science is in our favor that our odds of, of getting some a follow-up question answered and some even more bits of advice and assistance have been elevated by thanking in that way. Oh, absolutely. I think anytime you give somebody praise for something like that, they feel good. That plays into the principle we call liking when we're talking about persuasion. And the more they like you, the more likely they are down the road to say yes if you ask them to do something. Okay, that, that's excellent. Well, and, and then what I found intriguing was sometimes it's not even verbal, right? I, I remember there's some studies associated with if if a resume is on a heavy, weighty clipboard mm -hmm. that some people can infer like, oh, this is this is something of with some gravitas that should be taken more seriously. Or if we're drinking some a warm beverage, what's sort of the stuff that's that's there, but like nonverbal at work? So the beverage is a good example. If you invited somebody to your office you would be better off offering them something like a cup of coffee because that coffee would be warm and people who are feeling warm tend to have warmer feelings toward other people. Now, I'm not going to say that you want to give them a hot cup of coffee. If you live in Arizona, it's 115 mm -hmm. degrees outside. They'll still appreciate the the uh, kind act of, you know, a cold drink. But holding something warm tends to warm people and make them feel more warm towards other people. Uh, as you said, sometimes if you want somebody to really give a lot of thought to something, having it on heavy your stock paper or putting it on a clipboard where it feels heavier, that heaviness psychologically gives people the sense that this is a heavier, more weighty issue or something that, that really looks to be read. I bet a lot of people could relate to this. I, I see as we record this, Pete, that you got a lot of books in, in the background there. 
We all feel a little different about, you know, a really skinny, like very light book versus a book that's got substance. You just tend to think that book that has a lot more substance probably has a lot more detailed, good information. That may not be the case, but I think psychologically, many of us, when we pick up that that heavy hardback book versus the very light, smaller uh, paperback, we feel differently about those books. It's true. And, and again, uh, this isn't a, a panacea, you know, the, the most perfectly elegantly luxurious paper on the planet won't make a, a resume of poor content. <laughs> I'm sure capture a, a hiring manager to say, this guy, we, we got to hire him. But it very well could be like, oh, I should take a look at this. How much of a difference do these persuasive elements make? I'm imagining that it, it can't make up for, you know, poor content or not fundamentally having the goods. But what sort of an edge does it enable? Well, I think if we go back to the example I shared earlier about the grocery store, they went from 33 to 76% just by asking a persuasive question beforehand. There's another study that's detailed in uh, Cialdini's book, Persuasion, and it had to do with people's willingness to buy French or German wine. When they would go into the, to the uh, wine store, they were either playing French music or German music. When they played French music, they sold more than three times more French wine as compared to the German. But when they played the German music, they sold 275% more German wine than they did the French. And when people were asked as they exited the store, most didn't even remember hearing the music. Those that did insisted it had nothing to do with their purchase decision. But it's undeniable the difference between that, that once that music's playing, it's impacting people's thinking and it impacted their behavior. That is powerful. And that kind of drives toward, I guess, the distinction I was was getting there is like, if folks are, are not interested in drinking wine, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yes. If they are not locked in on, you know, by golly, it's going to be Boda Box, Revolution, one of my favorites. <laughs> and if, if they're not sort of already dead set on a particular item, but they're like, hey, you know, what, what would be a good wine tonight? I don't know. Let's take a look. And then boom, they're, they're, they're put right through that shoot. But I think somebody who walks into a wine store has an intention of buying wine. So then the question becomes, you know, what might you do to push certain brands? Or maybe you have a newer brand and it's French and you want people to be uh, a little more enticed to try that. If something as simple as music can get people into a frame of mind where French wine becomes uh, an easier default choice, then then that's a really good thing. But you're right. If somebody doesn't drink wine, it's not going to impact them. But again, they probably wouldn't wander into the wine store to begin with. <laughs> they said they saw there was a humidor in the back. Yes. <laughs> and so then, well, that just sort of sparks all kinds of interesting possibilities. Like, I don't know, if you are a, a maker of German wine, maybe you want to be equipping your distributors with music systems <laughs> and well, on the condition that they play German music. I, mean, I don't know how, how practical that is, but it does show that there may very well be of small investments that make a huge impact. And, and I'm also thinking about, I've heard in, as I go to this event podcast movement full of podcasters and people in the podcast ecosystem, I've heard that, that sometimes there can be wildly compelling results from advertisements. Like, let's say it's a product about reducing risk, you know, like insurance or something in the context of a show that's really scary, like about a murder or, or a true crime thing that gets like, oh, that could happen to me. Like that kind of influence is, is huge. Can you speak more to, to that in terms of advertising marketing realms? 
Yeah. Well, if you are going to pay to be on some type of show, you probably want to consider what is that show and what is going to be the mindset that most people are going to be in as they watch that show. If people are watching something that that really is scary, risk is scary. And so by advertising something about risk, or maybe it's insurance at that time, people might be more apt to pay attention to that because they're in that fearful state. If we had no fear at all, we wouldn't probably buy any insurance. I mean, it's not that you're selling fear, but we know that bad things can happen and we want to mitigate that if possible. But we're not thinking about bad things happening when we're in certain mindsets, but we certainly are when we're in a fearful mindset. So strategically thinking about what is the show, what would be the mindset that people are going to be in is going to make a difference as to where you want to advertise. Okay, cool. Well, and I want to maybe zoom out a little bit to to the principal level. Within the book, we've got two commanders of attention, attractors and magnetizers. Can mm-hmm. you sort of help us understand that distinction and give us some examples of each? Well, an attractor is going to be something that, as it says, it attracts you and a magnetizer is going to be something that, that keeps your attention specifically on something. And when we talk about, as we teach about persuasion, One of the things that we talk about is, can we extend the time that we're persuading? The longer that somebody, for example, remains in the mindset that you want, the more opportunity you have if you are trying to persuade them. So an example of a magnetizer keeping something there, if we go back to the music, that would be a good example of a magnetizer because it's continually playing while you're there. It wasn't as simple as the question that might have changed your thinking in the moment, but then as you go through the store, that might not be impacting you any longer, but the music is continuing to to do that. So that would be, I think, a difference. Magnetizer is going to keep you there. The uh, attractor is going to be something that might grab your attention immediately. You know, when they talk about things like sex sells, sex is something that quite often will grab your attention right away. And that's important because We have limited capacity for our attention. And so if you can grab that attention, even momentarily, you've got a better chance of trying to influence somebody to do the thing that you need them to do. And in the context of what we're talking about, it's a purchase. Well, and then I suppose you've got to have some congruence with the offer or otherwise you're going to kind of lose out on some trust and and, and such like, wait, what? What does sex have to do with this? <laughs> yeah. And I think there are times where celebrities are advertising things and it's not even close to being in their wheelhouse. And so mm-hmm. while it may attract your attention in, in a moment, but you're not necessarily making a connection with what that product is that he or she is trying to sell, I think that things fall short there. You know, for example, if, if Tiger Woods is advertising things that revolve more around golf that is certainly going to be more congruent for somebody to say, well, you know what, if he plays that kind of ball, if he uses those kinds of irons, then maybe I could play a little better if I did, if I use the same products. But when he's selling something that's totally out of the realm of that, yes, he's attracting the attention because we all know who Tiger Woods is. But beyond that, I don't know that I'm compelled to drive a Buick because he drives a Buick. Yeah, that makes sense in, in terms of there's maybe not so much of a logical, rational connection. You know, it's maybe more just sort of brand good feels like, you know, what? I like Tiger Woods and I like what, or, or, or sort of whatever he stands for in your mind. And that could be good or bad, whatever he stands for, that sort of gets um, a bit imparted onto the brand and the feels associated with it, which is probably one of the reasons why when when folks uh, get themselves into hot water, 
brands cut bait real quick with them. Yes. Yes, they do. Okay. Well, and then I'm also intrigued by you talk about just how long you can sort of have that attention going. And there's there's a bit of an approach associated with having some mystery and keeping that tension and mystery going for a bit of time. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. Human beings, we don't like it when there's not kind of some finality to things, when there's not a bow on the package, you know, so that we can kind of wrap it up and say, okay, we're done with that. You know, you probably have had somebody who began to tell you a story and then they got interrupted. Maybe it was their phone or something like, oh, I'm sorry, I got to go to this meeting and you're left hanging. And you're like, wait a minute, I want to (laughs) know what's the end of this. And that is something that we can use to our advantage by sharing something that's interesting and compelling and then holding back a little bit. And then once that person's like, wait a minute, what's the end of the story? You have them even more focused on you and what you're sharing than if you might have just gone all the way through and given them the answer. It's not unlike this too, Pete. I've taught communications for a long time, and I know that people hate silence in conversation. So sometimes just saying what you need to say and then being quiet, all of a sudden they try to fill that space. And they're the ones now who are engaged with you. Where people make a mistake a lot is they just think they need to keep talking and basically throw everything except the kitchen sink at somebody. And that's the exact opposite. Create a little mystery in your communication, share a little bit, and then just be quiet and see how people start responding. Also, when you ask questions, people feel compelled to answer questions. So those are a couple of just small things that everybody can do in their day-to-day communication. Well, and could you give us an example of, of how we might go about sort of leaving something out to, to provide some mystery for a little bit of time? Well, I write a blog. I could certainly write a blog post and then leave it open-ended and say, next week, we're going to take a look at what actually happened. I mean, that's that would be a perfect case of, you know, I share some detail and then I leave it hanging because, you know, you don't want to uh, write a book when you're writing a podcast. You want to keep them relatively short. So maybe you put something out there with a, and we'll conclude on this next week. You see this sometimes in, in other advertising too, where they'll put something out and say, go to this website to find out the conclusion of the of the story or something like that. But If it's compelling enough, and that's the thing, though, it's got to be somewhat compelling, because if somebody puts out something that's of no interest to you at all, just like if you don't drink wine, you're not going to be in the wine store. If it's not of interest to you, but if you know your audience and what's of interest to them and you leave them hanging a little bit, like come back next week because I'm going to share the the answer with you, that's going to get more people, I think, coming back the following week and clicking on what you want them to click on. Oh, you know, that's so good. Well, again, Podcast Movement is coming up. They did exactly this, and I was totally riveted in terms of they said, you know, hey, you know, with the pandemic, we shifted to a virtual format, and we went through many, many, many options for platforms and providers in order to figure out one that's just going to be amazing. And, you know, it's not just going to be a bunch of Zoom. And and so it was like, oh, well, what is it? And it's like, I will tell you next week. And I like put yeah. it on my calendar. It was like, go to the podcast movement blog, yeah. <laughs> figure yeah. out what platform they're using. It's, it's Swap Card. I haven't used it, but apparently it's great. I trust those guys to pick a good one. And it did. It did it for me because there was some mystery and and I had to wait. And I I went ahead and went there to get the word. Yeah. Well, the news does this too. How many times have we seen something? There could be radon in your house, news at 11. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> now you're like, I got to tune in at 11 o'clock to find out, you know, radon levels <laughs> in, in homes in my area, something like that. So it happens, but 
what we want people to do as we teach about this is to be more thoughtful about their communication. How can I start taking this in without being a television advertiser or the news? How can I start using these simple and easy to implement ideas to have more people paying attention and ultimately doing the things that we need to do? And, you know, in a corporate environment, that's a big deal. Well, and maybe to wrap it up before we hear some of your favorite things, could you share, you know, what is post-suasion and why is it necessary and how do we do it? Post-suasion, like when I think about sales, and I usually work with, with salespeople, when you've made the sale, you would like to get referrals. And so I teach insurance agents this a lot. What I would never, ever do with you, Pete, if I was an insurance agent, I would never, ever say, hey, Pete, now that you're moving your insurance to my agency... You must be happy. Who else do you know who would like to make the switch? Because mentally, you're not there. You're just wondering if I've made the right choice. You've, you're making the switch. It's probably somewhat expensive if you're insuring your home and auto and all these other things. You are not thinking about how can I help Brian Ahern. Okay. So what I've always instructed agents to do is I would say to you, I'd say, Pete, you know, you've just made a, a big decision here, severing ties with your current agent and moving your your business here and I know that you've probably had people ask you for referrals at the end of the sale, and I'm not going to do that. But what I would like to ask you is this. If nine months from now, you're happy that you made the switch, that we have lived up to everything that we said we would do, and you're happy, would you be open to talking about referrals? And most people are willing to put off into the future what they don't want to do right now, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, if I'm happy, why wouldn't I be at least open to that? I've not even fully asked for a commitment. Mm. I've just said, would you be open to it? And and you're going to probably come back and say, sure, that's that's reasonable. Now it's on me in nine months to follow up with you. And I would do that. I'd call up, hey, Pete, how are you doing? And we'd talk a little bit. And I'd say, do you remember when we wrote your insurance? And I asked if you were happy would you be open to talking about referrals? It sounds like you're happy. Would you be okay setting a time next week to talk about those referrals? Now I'm kind of into the persuasion again, because I don't want to just ask you right during that conversation, because again, you weren't thinking about me and referrals. I just called you up. But once we set that time, you start thinking about who can I refer to Brian? And I'll do little things to ensure that. I will send you a quick email with a meeting reminder and a thank you. And the day of, I will shoot you a text and say, Pete, are we still good to talk about referrals this afternoon? But the whole time now you're starting to think about that. So the post-suasion started right after the sale. And now I'm pre-suading again, getting you into the mindset so that when I call and ask about referrals, you're ready to give me good quality referrals. Yeah, that, that's intriguing how it's it's bit by bit. You're doing it at the right times. And, you know, it's funny, maybe I'm just selfish, <laughs> but I have a hard time imagining how I would ever make the time to provide someone with insurance referrals unless, like, you really hooked me up. It sort of like, straight up, my house burned down and you swooped into action and saved the day. Wow. Or you keep giving me other cool tips mm -hmm. associated with saving money, reducing risk. Like if it's a home, maybe just sort of like, hey, do you know about Home Advisor and how you can find how much a renovation should cost before you do it? Like, no, I didn't. Thank you, uh, Brian's Insurance. Uh, that's really cool of you. So I, I guess I, I also need a little bit of a little bit of wow to do that personally. Yeah. Well, that's why I, I said that 
if we live up to what we said we would do. Yeah. So that was part of the buying process, right? You switched because maybe you were saving money, but maybe there was other things that I was saying we will do. And you're thinking, my current agent doesn't do any of that. So, so that's implied by me that that's part of the sale. And that in nine months, when we talk about it, you're like, hey, you know, the insurance advisor and all the things you said you would do, which, which helped me make the switch, you've done. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy. And that's where I've got that opportunity then because you've said I'd be open to talking about referrals. So you're right. There's got to be part of that package of why you made the decision to move. Yeah. And well, this has to be a whole nother podcast is how to differentiate yourself in a crowded market. But it's like, what would that be? Like maybe for home insurance once a year, you sent a person over and you took a spent half an hour looking at some stuff. It's like, hey, man, you're going to want some tuck pointing right there. You're going to see some water damage within a couple of years. It's like, oh, well, thanks for letting me know. That would really be distinctive and make me really want to, I guess, this reciprocity uh, say, wow, that was so cool of you. I want to be cool to you right back. So yeah, let's do those referrals. Yeah. And that's, you're right though. How do you stand out? Insurance is a somewhat generic product. The real differentiator becomes who that insurance agent is. And it's all about what you value in a relationship with an insurance agent. Sometimes agents will say, well, because we're local and I'll challenge them. I'll say, you know what? Some people don't care if you're local because they can see you online anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. So you need to understand if that's part of the buying process for you. Right, right. Well, Brian, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I would just encourage people to pick up a copy of of Cialdini's book. One, it's a fascinating read. I think they will be amazed at how things that they might not even consider can impact them at the conscious, but quite often at the subconscious level and really cause a substantial change in behavior. It's good because you want to understand what might be impacting you so you can make the most informed decisions possible. But if a large part of your success is getting people to say yes and do things, then really starting to think about how can I set the stage so that when I go and make my ask, it's easier, that will be extremely beneficial for you. Okay. Thank you. Well, now can you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I think one of my favorite quotes, and and I'm not going to get it word for word right, but one of the most impacting books I've ever read was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And towards the end, he said, uh, in the end, they can take away all of our human freedoms except for the last freedom, which is where we will place our thoughts. That, you know, he really said that the, the man or the woman who knew that nobody could make them think what they didn't want to think was actually the freest person. And he said we were freer than some of the guards who who maintained our captivity because we understood that. And I think that's, I read that such a long time ago, but I always go back to that, that the freedom of thought, nobody can take that away from me. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I would say probably research around highlighting loss loss Mm. aversion with uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, because when I share any of that, and and the research that I'm thinking specifically is University of California, when they did energy audits and went back to people and gave them ideas to make their homes more energy efficient, they either said, if you do this, you will save $180 next year if you're like the typical homeowner, or if you don't do this, you will lose $180 next year because you're going to overpay. It's the same $180, but how it's talked about makes a world of difference. And in that particular case study, 150% more people who were told they would lose tended to implement the energy-saving ideas. 
that goes back to their work on loss aversion, that humans are anywhere from two to two and a half times more likely to say yes to the very same thing when they think they'll lose as opposed to where they may gain. And there's so many opportunities for people to move something from a gain view into a loss frame and not being a negative or a threatening or anything like that, but just by conversationally talking about what somebody might lose. And so there's uh, just a tremendous amount of opportunity for people to do that. Mm-hmm. And a favorite book? Well, other than uh, Influence, Science, and Practice, I, my book, <laughs> Influence <laughs> People. <laughs> now, actually, I'll, I'll give you two books because they really radically impacted how I make my presentations. One was Carmine Gallo's The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs, and the other was Presentation Zen. Between the two of those books and changing how I format and, and the visuals that I use with audiences and then thinking about Steve Jobs and how he interacted with people, it completely changed my stage presence and it gets a tremendous feedback. So those are, those are two books that have had a big impact on me. Well, Brian, maybe you have to have a third, a third visit. We had Carmine on the show, but can you give us sort of one tidbit in terms of before I always did this and now I never do this or, or vice versa? Well, before I did a lot of words and I would just do some bullet points as I'd go through things. And what I do now is almost entirely visual. I will usually have a keyword, like if I'm going to talk about a principle, you might see the word authority. And then I talk about it. And then maybe I click and, and it says research at the bottom or application. It was a little scary at first because you can't look over your shoulder and, yeah. and hit a bullet point. But then there's a freedom with it because nobody says, hey, you didn't talk about the third bullet point. And what I started to sense was I could go in any direction I wanted with an audience. And when people would say, could I have your PowerPoint? I'm like, why? It's 24 pictures. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you need me to interpret that for you. So that was a big change. The more comfortable I got with it, the more fun I would have when I was with audiences. Yeah. I've been down that road as well because, you know, I used to make slides. Well, and sometimes I do, you know, based on the audience, like as a strategy consultant, I mean, that was kind of the idea. And, uh, and Nancy Duarte would call it a slide doc. It's like, this is not just to supplement you while keynoting, it is going to be distributed amongst decision makers and follow-up meetings as a, a piece of research tool to get work done. So that's, that's very different than I want to draw you into a good energy space and augment my message when I'm keynoting on stage versus I need to persuade you that this is going to make you 16 million incremental dollars uh, next year. Yeah. You always have to think about who your audience is and what you want that takeaway to be. And when I reference what I do, I'm t thinking really of keynote presentations. And I've got Duarte's book right down below my near my feet here, Slideology. And I would say that's a great book too. I just happened to read Presentations Zen many years ago before her book came out. And so that's what started to impact me. And how about a favorite tool? Something you used to be awesome at your job. A favorite tool right now is a, an app called Voice Dream. I have that one. Do you use it? I've used it a couple times when I needed something read to me and I couldn't find a way to do it. Voice Dream was the way to do it. How do you use it? So I, I use it for a lot of stuff. I have a personal mission statement. I downloaded to it. And it takes about three minutes. But usually when I'm doing my coffee in the morning, I press it and I hear the words of the mission statement. So every day I'm, I'm hearing that. I'm in the middle of writing my second book. And so I download it and then I start listening to it to find out how it sounds because my eyes can deceive me. I know what I want to see. But once I hear it, I'm like, oh, it should be the, not they. And you catch the little things like that. Oh, fascinating. 
I'll bring a blog post in and quickly write the blog post, clean it up, but then I'll listen to it. I'll go back and refine it. So what I would say, Pete, is try and use it for some things you're not right now. And I think you're going to start going, wow, this is so beneficial that you'll start pulling more things into it. You'll just realize how important it is to hear what it is that you're writing before you actually publish. Oh, that's good. And and you're hearing it a bit differently than if you read it yourself out loud. Yes. And you're saving the time of making a recording. Yep. So that's clever to surface errors and, and better ways to rephrase things in a different way. I like it. Thank you. You're welcome. And a favorite habit. My favorite habit remains working out. I'm up every day at 5 a.m. And by 530, I'm downstairs. I've got a really nice gym in my basement. I usually run in the morning do three to five miles a lot of times on the treadmill because I like watching things on Netflix and then I'll spend time stretching and then I'll go back down in the afternoon and spend 30 to 45 minutes lifting weights. This became the routine during COVID because you couldn't go anywhere. But then I started to realize I really like the routine. I like the aerobic activity to start the day. I like going down and working my muscles after I've been sitting for a while and just the break from thinking to be able to do that. And then, you know, it's usually dinner time and my wife and I are interacting after that. So that's a daily seven day a week routine. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks that quote it back to you frequently? I think around the principle of liking, as I have really come to emphasize, it's not about me getting you, Pete, to like me. It's about me coming to like you. And that seems like it's been revolutionary for a lot of people. They all know that you know if somebody likes them, it's easier for the people to say yes, but they've never really thought about maybe if I spend more time coming to like other people, that will be the difference maker. And, you know, smart people over the course of history have known this. Abraham Lincoln said, I don't like that man very much. I need to get to know him better. And I think if we all took that tact, that we would probably have much, much better relationships. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I'd say my website, influencepeople.biz. From there, if you want to buy my book, you, you can buy the book. I've got, you know, I've been blogging for a, a dozen years now, been on almost 80 podcasts. Uh, all of that stuff is there. It's all free. The book's not free. You do have to buy that. But the podcasts, I've got some, some videos. Uh, I've got the blog, all of that stuff. So there's a tremendous amount of information that's out there. And the other thing I would say, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm always open to connecting with people. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I would say really start giving some thought to persuasion and persuasion. That's one of those things that we do throughout the course of our lifetime. And so we can almost take it for granted. But if we really pause and start thinking strategically about these principles of human behavior and how can we bring them into our communication, you know, whether it's oral or, or written, you will have more people saying yes to you. You'll enjoy a lot more success at the office as a result of it. Brian, this has been a treat. I wish you lots of luck in all the ways you're being persuasive. Thank you. I appreciate it, Pete. I love what Brian has to say about setting the stage, getting those persuasive elements in advance. And maybe you're asking them a question that gets them thinking a certain way. Maybe you're having a heavy clipboard or a heavy paper or something, or you're getting the room just the right temperature. Whatever your style, your flavor, your approach, I do recommend you give some real thought to the conditions that immediately precede your persuasive appeal to boost your odds. Just even think about if they're in a good mood right now and maybe when might be a better mood or if you just nailed something excellently, now might be a wonderful time to make your request. Just 
Think about how you set the stage. It makes a world of difference. The show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP613. If you haven't already, I recommend you push subscribe. We've got our next guest. It's Annie Duke, poker champion. She's back and she is talking about how to decide simple, practical tools we can all use to make better decisions. Hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.